From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. COVID cases are rising, but the state's chief epidemiologist is more optimistic this time around. Our hope is certainly that what we're going to experience is not going to be like we experienced in previous surges. We'll get perspective from a Denver doctor who's tracking what's behind those numbers. We'll also get the latest on COVID treatments and vaccines for the youngest Coloradans. Then a 19-year-old shares his journey back from broken. He struggled with his identity as a transgender man and turned to drugs before finding hope beyond rehab. It was like I wasn't pretending anymore and I was able to like truly be happy and learn how to be happy within the person that I am. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. COVID numbers have been creeping up lately, but medical experts aren't sounding the alarm. They say data modeling predict many fewer hospitalizations than earlier surges. We'll get some context for what's happening with Dr. Anuj Mehta. He's a pulmonary and critical care physician at Denver Health Medical Center, and he advises the state on issues related to COVID. We'll also ask some other timely questions about COVID vaccines for young kids and new masking protocols. Dr. Mehta, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Andrea. Let's start with the basics. Projections say to expect a further rise in COVID cases. Why is this happening now? Well, I think what we're seeing is that there are several Omicron subvariants that are starting to spread and those are hitting people that uh, don't have some baseline immunity. So either they were infected a long time ago and that immunity is worn off or they chose not to get vaccinated. And so they have no um, endogenous immunity. So we're seeing a rise in cases. But I think what's a good thing is that an overwhelming population of percentage of the state has some degree of immunity. So we don't anticipate um, such a large increase in hospitalizations at this point. And again, you know, the big question is always whether hospitalizations will reach the heights they did during other surges. That's been among your biggest concerns during the pandemic. It's what you've focused on quite a bit. What do you see ahead exactly? I think we'll see an increase in uh, COVID-related hospitalizations in the coming month, but I don't think we're going to reach the peak of nearly 16 or 1700 that we were in January uh, that really was breaking the system. I anticipate some people are going to be hospitalized, especially those who are older, have some comorbidities or chose not to get vaccinated. Um, But it's going to be much smaller numbers due to 
some baseline immunity that exists within the um, within the general population. I just can't predict the exact numbers, but I, I, they should go up. But I'm hoping not as much as they they were in the past. So no huge alarm bells at this point. But I understand you had a trip planned to go to New Jersey. You decided to cancel it due to concerns about the spread of the virus. Some might say that's overly cautious, but you're an expert on all of this. Why cancel? Um, you know, part of it is is just uh, um, my family tends to be overly cautious. I work in the intensive care unit. My wife is a healthcare worker as well. And so we tend to um, be extra protective. We have two young children, both of whom are vaccinated. Um, but uh, the numbers in New Jersey are, are higher. And, and it was actually less so the traveling and more so the issue of being in a large wedding venue. That's that we were going for a family wedding. Um, and at that setting, I don't know who's vaccinated. Um, I don't know uh, what's going to happen with masking in terms of the individuals um, that are going to be at the wedding. So just on the safer side, and it's also a tough trip with two young kids for just uh, just a weekend. <laughs> just back to hospitalizations, um, we talked about PPE a lot during the earlier part of the pandemic. Is that an at all a concern right now? No, I think hospitals across the board have really done a fantastic job uh, to augment their PPE uh, storage, their augment their PPE supplies. Um, I haven't seen any issues from any hospitals talking about um, shortages. We have changed. We still have changed a little bit than compared to what we did before. I mean, before the pandemic, you used one mask on one patient, and now we're using one mask for the whole day. And that's just kind of a shift in, in practice. I don't think that's necessarily um, deleterious to patients at all, but I, I don't see any shortage in PE at this point. But with supply chain constraints, um, if we were to see a really large surge, maybe in the fall or the winter, um, you know, supply chain concerns are ongoing for multiple medical issues, uh, medical uh, devices and, and supplies. Um, so that's something we do need to keep an eye on, but not right now. It's not a concern right now. A lot of parents are wondering about vaccines for kids under five years old. Word is that the FDA may delay authorization for this particular age group. Why is that? Um, I think that what's really critical for this youngest group is that we need to ensure safety and efficacy. And that's what we've always wanted for every age group. Um, what they found, at least from the Pfizer vaccine, when they tried two doses, and this dose was 10% of the adult size dose. So it was a really small dose that for the youngest kids, actually six months to two years, the two doses was pretty effective at driving an immune response. But actually for the two to four-year-old group, and, and remember that those are bigger kids, the small dose was not enough. So now they're testing a third dose. I think we're waiting for the um, a data on that, wondering if this um, really small dose would take three doses um, for kids under the age of five. Um, that being said, Moderna um, has released some promising data uh, on antibody responses amongst the youngest children. So I do anticipate that one or both companies will be submitting it um, for an emergency use authorization for the youngest group um, in the next month to two months. And I do know that Pfizer, I think today or yesterday, actually uh, requested an emergency use authorization for a booster dose for the 5 to 11-year-old group. Do you see any risk to these very young kids getting the vaccine? You know, as much as we didn't have the best of efficacy data on the two-dose regimen, one thing we really had a lot of was great safety data. Um, and so there's been no issues related to the youngest kids uh, outside of what we've seen in, in terms of the oldest kids. And that's actually the reason they chose such a small dose. Again, 10% of the adult dose. Um, 
for their clinical trial was to minimize any of the side effects, and they haven't seen any sort of long-term complications. Vaccines in general are exceedingly safe. There are side effects for all vaccines. The COVID vaccines have time and time again been shown to be exceedingly safe, um, regardless of your age, accepting the fact that everything has side effects. And when it comes to reducing the spread of the virus, how critical is vaccinating this group? I think the uh, reducing the spread of the virus, I think vaccinating all age groups is really critical. We know that there are big popu- big proportions of adults that are unvaccinated, and there's a, actually quite large inequities um, amongst uh, underrepresented minorities who have higher rates of not being vaccinated. Uh, we know that kids are not being vaccinated at super high rates. And so the age group under five, um, it becomes important when you view it in that sense. There are so many groups of people that are not yet vaccinated, that vaccinating everyone of every age group really will diminish spread through the community. Um, but, uh, you know, I completely understand patient, um, uh, parents' concerns. I'm a parent. Um, and I think everybody has to look at the data when, when it's available and make a decision for themselves in consultation with their pediatrician. Just to this concept of herd immunity, where enough people are vaccinated that the virus goes away, how much of a chance is there that that'll happen? Um, it's, it's tough because what we're seeing with the current vaccines is that they are amazingly effective at preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. I can tell you, even during the Omicron surge, when our hospital was overwhelmed with COVID, the people that were ending up in my intensive care unit were almost exclusively people that were not vaccinated. So there's always talk about, well, the vaccines just don't work against Omicron. That's not true. They work amazingly well keeping people out of the hospital. But we are seeing uh, a higher proportion of people that um, have been vaccinated that are getting mild infections. Um, And so that makes herd immunity much harder because the vaccines are less effective at preventing any infection. They're amazingly effective at keeping people out of the hospital, though, and preventing long COVID, which is another benefit of the vaccine. So, I, you know, I don't know if we're going to get to herd immunity, especially with the way we're seeing multiple subvariants evolve. And over time, we'll probably see variants out of other countries where vaccination rates are far lower. And, you know, in general, I feel like the steam to vaccinate um, the world, uh, the energy behind that is really starting to drop off, which, which is sad because that's the only way to prevent the emergence of new variants that are potentially more lethal than Omicron. We're speaking with Anuj Mehta. Dr. Mehta advises the state on issues related to COVID. He's a pulmonary and critical care physician at Denver Health. And Dr. Mehta, the White House just announced an effort to get the word out to more Americans about the drug Paxlovid. It's supposed to prevent people from developing a severe case of COVID. How effective is it? Um, The data from the original clinical trial that led to the emergency use authorization is really great. It showed um, drops of more than 50% in the rates of severe disease and death, upwards of 70 to 80%. So uh, granted, that wasn't studied during the Omicron surge, but the way Paxlovid works, it shouldn't really be affected by which variant is out there. So I think it's a really great drug. Um, I I know friends that have taken it um, who have a comorbidity that puts them at higher risk. Uh, and uh, they uh, felt better. Unclear if it actually speeds the recovery process, but it does keep people out of hospital. So it's a great option, and I'm in strong support of, of trying to do what we can to get it into the hands of people who need it. Why has it been hard to get it into the hands of the people who need it? Yeah, it's. Uh, it's it, I think it's a little bit of a supply and demand issue. Um, so initially, when it was first authorized in January, 
Um, we had the Omicron surge, and there was exceedingly limited supply. So everybody wanted it, and nobody could get it. Now we've evolved to this point where there's actually good supply, but people have almost forgotten about it. They almost think they don't need it because Omicron is quote unquote, supposed to be milder, which um, in general is true, but people can still feel quite ill. I think it's uh, also an issue of not all pharmacies have it. And so finding resources to identify, you know, who has it, where it is, and the state's already setting up some of those, um, some of those uh, uh, systems to try and um, advise people where they can go to get it. And the test to treat centers are really a great option where you can go get a test and then actually get the prescription right then and there. But there are some issues with the drugs. Um, it's amazingly effective, but there are a lot of medication interactions. So you have to think carefully and ask your pharmacist or physician carefully um, about whether it's an option for you. And people with severe kidney or liver disease, unfortunately, it's contra contraindicated in them. So it's not available to everybody in terms of medical indication, but it's a really great medication. Let's talk about masking. There's been a debate about whether it significantly slows the spread of the virus. Some communities and schools didn't require masks, but studies show they had similar case rates as those who did. How do you see the recent court order that dropped the mask requirements on planes, trains, and buses? I can't get into the legal issues of that, about whether that, um, yeah, because I think the court order specifically talked about the, uh, the um, enforcement abilities of the CDC. I personally think a strong federal public health team with the ability to um, enforce rules is important. Um, I can say from a medical perspective, I think that masking in public health set in, in public transportation settings is still really important. Planes, everyone's talked about planes. And, and to be quite honest, planes have a great filtration system, and we see, haven't seen a ton of spread within the plane itself, um, although it's unclear what's happening with Omicron. All the data we have about um, transmission on planes is before Omicron. I worry a lot more, quite frankly, about the long TSA lines. Everyone's packed into the TSA, waiting for security for over an hour. Um, people are stressed, and there's no air filtration. People are taking off their masks. Um, that I find concerning. But also buses and trains, we have to remember um, that it's the most vulnerable people to COVID um, uh, who are the ones that use public transportation more than everybody else. And so removing masks there, I think, puts a vulnerable group at even higher risk. I think it's still important to mask, and, and the CDC currently recommends this, um, still important to mask um, in public transportation settings and crowded indoor settings where um, transmission um, in the community is high. Um, I continue to mask in grocery stores and, and uh, places like that. Um, so it, it's, it's all a question of, um, you know, how much risk you're willing to take. But also we have to remember that masks are not just a question about protecting yourself. It's protecting your people around you. So it's really masking, in my opinion, in those settings is concern for yourself, but also for those around you. Okay, to booster shots, people over the age of 50 and those younger who are at higher risk can now get an additional booster. How beneficial would this be? Uh, that's a tough question, Andrea. I think we don't, we have a lot of data about the safety of the fourth dose. We don't have a ton of data about the efficacy. The only data we have is that of Israel, which actually launched a second booster program that shows that for about two months, it's really good at preventing infection. And as I mentioned earlier, the, fir the first booster, so three doses for adults, is amazing at prevent keeping people out of the hospital and preventing severe infection. Um, and the fourth dose seems for a couple months to prevent infection in general. Um, 
but that people have to weigh that against, um, you know, kind of what their daily activities are and, and the fact that the prote- added protection is probably short lived. So when people have asked me, you know, if they're, if they're planning on travel, if they're planning on getting together at a big group um, setting, they're, especially international travel, then I've told people to get it right away um, and to plan it kind of based around what their threat of exposure is. I don't think everybody has to rush to get it, but again, it's not going to hurt you. Um, it's just a question of how long that protection is actually going to last. Um, I just, in the last minute that we have, you've expressed serious concerns about the number of people who didn't have COVID but have delayed care for other illnesses. How significant uh, is this issue of delayed care? I think that is the primary health concern issue secondary to COVID at this point. Our hospital continues to be extremely busy. My ICU continues to be extremely busy uh, because of people that didn't have access to care. And I don't want to make this make it sound like people made poor decisions. They were afraid they lost their job and didn't have insurance or whatever the case is. Um, and so we're seeing impacts of that. And we're also seeing the impacts of delayed colonoscopies with an increase in diagnosis of later stage cancers. I think this is going to be with us for several years. Um, and it's a major concern moving forward about how we staff our healthcare system and how we anticipate uh, the severity of illness that people are going to present with as they get diagnosed with colon cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, things that we typically would screen for, but haven't necessarily been able to in the last couple of years. So it's something we really need to plan for. And it's a really strong recommendation to people to re-engage with their primary care team, um, You know, get the screening, get back on medications. If you haven't been doing that, your hypertension, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes medications, it's really a time to, for people to start taking care of themselves. And as the weather gets nice, um, start exercising and uh, trying to uh, do what you can to keep the other illnesses that exist um, at bay. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Andrea. Always a pleasure. Dr. Anuj Mehta is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Denver Health Medical Center. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. CPR is growing and evolving to better serve a growing and evolving audience in Colorado. And we're looking for new members of our team with job openings now for a fundraising manager and Salesforce administrator. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make Colorado Public Radio. And your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. See all open job opportunities and what working at CPR is like at CPR.org careers. Growing up, Morgan Sinclair wrestled with his identity as a transgender man. He turned to drugs to numb his feelings and struggled with addiction. As a teen, he found help through rehab and Denver's unique 5280 high school. Now at age 19, he's four years sober and sees a whole new life ahead of him. He shared his journey back from broken with CPR's Vic Vela. Middle school was horrible. I feel like it is for most people, maybe not all, but... Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. horrible time in life. But that was definitely when, you know, puberty hit, everybody's figuring themselves out. But that was when I kind of realized that I was transgender. I mean, at the time, I shoved it, like, so far deep into my mind that, like... I didn't even think about it all that often. Mm-hmm. 
Was it kind of lonely? Like you didn't feel... I remember I, I was I knew I was gay at a very young age. Um, and I'm, I'm a lot older than you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, back... Uh, I grew up in a small town as well. And, and back in the 80s and 90s, it, it, you know, being gay wasn't as, uh, you know, socially accepted, right? right? As it was, as it is these days. Um, but I remember... I knew that I was gay. I knew I was attracted to other boys, but I just, I couldn't talk to anybody about those feelings. Yeah, I couldn't either. I mean, I remember looking in the mirror and be like, something something isn't right here. And I would actually like go on my phone and pull up the private browser on Safari and search up like transgender facts and like all this stuff on it and then like exit out of it and never speak of it. I'm sure a lot of you listening can relate to someone having bad memories from when they were a teenager in school. There's a lot of pressure to fit in. There's cliques, you know, the cool kids, the jocks, the nerds, things like that. But Morgan Sinclair felt like he didn't belong at all. You see, when Morgan was born, his sex assignment was female. He's identified as a transgender male for a while now. But before Morgan learned to love who he is... He was on a dangerous path. Morgan, who's now 19, became addicted to drugs when he was just 13. And his story can teach us a lot about how hard it can be to accept who we are. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. Morgan Sinclair had a typical middle-class upbringing in the Denver suburbs. He had two loving parents and a younger brother who was the perfect playmate. We hang out all the time. Since I didn't have many friends, he was kind of like my go-to for a while. And we would just do the normal stuff, play video games, run around the backyard, um, wrestle, stuff like that. Morgan loved playing with boys and hanging out with his brother. Then one day, Morgan told his grandma something. When I was four, around when I was four, I don't know, but my dad actually told me this when I came out because I don't remember this but I was like just talking to my grandma and I was like hey grandma I think I'm a boy and she was like "Ah, no you're not and tried to explain it to me but I was like no I'm a boy and she just like let it go after that but I just thought it was funny that is well what, what made you say that I'm a boy honestly when I was that age not quite sure I mean, definitely all all through growing up, I had wished I was. Um, And when I was four, I didn't know what being transgender meant or if, like, I didn't even know what that was. I'd always just wanted to fit in with the guys more often than the girls. I think I just was saying that because, like, that's what I had hoped, I guess. Would you say when you were younger, you you were doing more things that typically more boys would do? Oh, yeah, I was playing uh, football, tackle football with all my guy friends, wrestling, not real wrestling, but just 
play wrestling. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's that old word. You remember that word, tomboy? Mm-hmm. Was, That's what I used to get called. <laughs> who called you that? Everybody. Morgan knew he was different. He didn't dress like a girl, and he didn't feel comfortable in his own skin. And he was determined to bury his emotions because desperately he wanted to belong. By the age of 12, Morgan started skipping classes and locking himself away in his bedroom. The only thing that kept him from total despair was watching YouTube clips where Morgan would learn more about transgender people. I mean, I kind of used YouTube as an outlet to feel less alone because it was very lonely being in my bedroom by myself for like all the hours of the day that I wasn't at school. I mean, sometimes I would just kind of cry in my room because I was sad and alone. But YouTube did help me out a lot with that and just feeling like I was a part of something, which is interesting now that I think about that. I mean, thank God though, right? Right. At least, at least you had something to to look at and, and 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 kind of point at and say, "This is, you know, these are. It's okay to feel like this." Yeah. When did uh, drugs and alcohol kind of start entering the picture for you? When I was twelve, in okay. eighth grade, I was friends with this guy named Ollie and Bennett. And they kind of told me, hey, we met this guy, and he, like, smokes weed, and we're going to hang out with him later. Do you want to come or whatever? And I kind of, like, was begging them to let me go. And then I went there with about eight other guys that were there, and he had bought, like, an ounce of weed. It was, like, a lot for, like, my first time ever smoking or seeing weed at all, actually. And that was the first time I ever did anything um what did uh how did it make you feel awesome um yeah 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 i mean that's why they call it getting right. high right <laughs> yeah it was like something was missing and that's what was missing and i've heard people describe it like that and it, that's exactly how it feels it's just that I've, i found this piece of me that i was missing for as long as i could remember and instantly i was like this is what i'm gonna do for the rest of my life Morgan dug deeper into this lifestyle. He would sleep all day and skip classes, and he would self-medicate his loneliness by experimenting with harder drugs. You were starting to kind of get into harder drugs, and the LSD wasn't—it wasn't mm-hmm. as fun, right? Like it was getting harder to be on yeah. LSD. Then, what made you keep going toward other harder drugs like Molly and Coke and things like that? Well, actually, I think. The only thing that, well, not the only thing, but the biggest thing that kept me trying different things and doing different things was that getting high and, like, doing drugs, whatever they were, was, like, the only thing that I found fun for a while. And it was the only thing that I enjoyed, and it was the only thing that made me happy. So I wanted to chase anything that would get me to a point of happiness that I, like, thought I wanted to be at. But the drugs were starting to change Morgan's attitude and personality. 
He was arguing with his parents more, and people were noticing the changes at school. There's this one specific memory that I have going into my sign language class after lunch, after I'd gotten high, and my sign language teacher tried to take my phone, and I completely started, like, screaming at her, and then she sent me to the principal's office, and I ended up just going in there and secretly, like, swiping my phone back from the basket and, like, leaving, um, but I was constantly getting in arguments with all of my teachers, um, Why do you suppose that was going on? I mean, they were just kind of asking me to do what I was supposed to be doing. And my perspective on school was like, this is literally the worst thing in the world. Um, And I hate being here. And I just want to get high. And I hated when people told me what to do. So I'd kind of just fight back with everything. It's really amazing how, yeah, I, I had the same thing going on. Lots of drugs, lots of booze, and lots of... Um, I hated authority. I, I could not, don't tell me what to do. Don't, don't, teacher, cop, you know, whoever you are, don't even do, don't even go there or else I'm going to blow up. Yeah. I know now that it was, there was a lot of pain. And, and would you say the kind of pain was at the root of yours? Yeah, a hundred percent. Cause at the bottom of everything, like the reason I was getting high was because I was so, unhappy with who I was and what I was doing and just everything about myself I hated. Morgan became more secretive. He didn't want to talk to his parents or his brother about anything. He just couldn't face the constant screaming matches with his parents over his choice of friends or where he had been all night. And he definitely wanted to hide his drug use. Well, at first, I made all these little hiding spots in my room. Like, I would cut open this huge stuffed animal I had and, like, shove the drugs in the middle of it and just kind of put it right next to my bed. I would put, like, weed, especially in, like, deodorant bottles, like empty ones, but with, like, a little bit left. Like, you wouldn't be able to smell it. Um, And... Yeah. Wow. Wow, really, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of um, very crazy <laughs> hiding spots. I had a tapestry on my ceiling that I put it like in between the tapestry and the ceiling. Well, you're better than I was. I would, <laughs> I would, I would plan on trying to hide something, and then I would just pass out and leave it all on the table. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I was strategic with it. <laughs> and there was one more secret Morgan couldn't face. His identity. Every day it was getting harder and harder for him to look in the mirror. He hated the mere sight of his body and tried to hide it at every opportunity. I still was extremely insecure and I extremely like hated myself. Um, And I kind of just really, really wanted this like quick fix that wasn't possible. Um, Because it takes time and that's all right, but... It was just, it was such a relief to be able to even just wear t-shirts or like, not like 15 layers of clothing because I, I don't know if you know what binders are. Please explain. Okay. So binder is like basically a really tight bra that like squeezes everything in and makes your chest look flat. But at the same time, it also suffocates you and I hate tight clothing So I was never really able to wear a binder um, 
because it just made me more uncomfortable, actually. I mean, it helped with the dysphoria that I was having, but I, like, could barely breathe, and I was just super uncomfortable. So I, I tried, like, layering up and, like, wearing a, a, a shirt, a long sleeve, jackets, so I can flannels, like, the whole nine yards, and still was super insecure, but, I mean, it helped a little bit. Morgan fell into a deep despair, and his drug use was getting more dangerous. I went to this concert and took a bunch of acid and drank a bunch of alcohol and ended up blacking out and wandering somewhere, and I think I passed out, and I I don't really remember at all, Um, but someone found me and called an ambulance. And all I remember is waking up the next day in the hospital um, with my mom. And after that, I didn't really care. But his parents did care. They made Morgan go to rehab, even if he didn't want to. And Morgan didn't know it at the time, but he'd soon realize that what happened at the concert that night would prove integral to his recovery. That's coming up after the break. Of all of Colorado's beautiful places, a scene photographed more than most is the Maroon Bells, the pair of purple and white striped 14ers near Aspen. To see them at sunrise, reflected perfectly in Maroon Lake below, is simply stunning. The peaks get their unique color and streaked appearance from mudstone, which can be crumbly and fragile and dangerous to climb. There's a U.S. Forest Service sign at an access trail. It warns, quote, the rock is downsloping, rotten, loose, and unstable. It kills without warning. It goes on to say, expert climbers who did not know the proper routes have died here. Don't repeat their mistakes, for only rarely have these mountains given a second chance words to consider before you climb the Maroon Bells, also known as the Deadly Bells. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Let's rejoin Back from Broken, CPR's podcast about recovery with host Vic Vela. Vic is talking with Morgan Sinclair. As a teenager, Morgan struggled with being a transgender man. He turned to drugs to escape. We want to note this story includes discussion of suicide. Here's something that gets asked a lot of people in recovery. What does rock bottom look like? Well, for Morgan, passing out on drugs at a concert was certainly a wake-up call. Oh, yeah. It was honestly one of the scariest experiences that's ever happened to me, probably. In my brain, like, and I don't know how to describe this, but in my brain, like, on acid, I, like, thought that I was dying And I had this whole trip that I was getting, like, killed and, like, had surgery done on me while I was awake. But in real life, I was just, you know, wandering the streets of Boulder, which is, you know, probably just as scary being by myself. And at the time, a female who was 15. You weren't feeling suicidal or anything? 
I absolutely was. Yeah? Yeah. All throughout my drug use. But every day, yeah, I, I did. I did want to die. You know, what emotions come to mind when you kind of go back and think about what that was like back then? Honestly, just hopelessness is the biggest one that I think about. Like, I genuinely felt hopeless and like things were never going to get better. And I honestly didn't see myself making it past 18. Not that I had any plans to ever kill myself, but I just had kind of hoped that something would happen and I would die, which is really sad. (laughs) No, but it's also, you know, um, it's, it's, it's something I've, I've heard many times before of people, um, in recovery is that we, you know, it's, it's not that I actively had some sort of plan to take my life. Uh, but if, if I took too many drugs and overdose, well then so be it. Morgan was 15 years old when he started an outpatient program at Cornerstone, a rehab center for young people and their families. It was different from how he imagined. Well, it was the complete opposite of what I thought it was going to be when my parents told me I was going to rehab. I thought I was going to walk into like white padded cells, but I, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) but I walked into the front office of their building, which is just a few offices, and then talked to the head counselor there for a little bit. And he was trying to get me to like be honest about how much drugs I was doing and all that. And I was like, oh no, I'm just smoking weed on the weekends. There's no, no need for me to be here. You weren't ready to be honest. Oh, definitely not. Not, not that day. And then after he talked to me for a while, I saw this board with the steps that we work there, which is pretty much the AA steps, but just just a little different. And I was looking at those, and I was reading through them, and I was like, I'm not going to believe in no God, like none of that stuff. And then he, he walked me to the back part, which is basically just a big warehouse with couches, basketball hoops, a bar, of course, with just like sodas and stuff, and a foosball table and a bunch of people like just having fun and yelling and running around. And I mean, it was, it was really, I was like taken aback. I was like, where, where am I? Who are these people? What's going on? (laughs) This is not what I expected. Um, And then a few people actually ran up to me and were like, oh my God, hi, like, what's your name? Like, what are your drugs of choice? How old are you? Like asking me all these questions about myself. I mean, this sounds like this was Morgan, the first time in your life that that you, there was, People expressing genuine camaraderie toward you. Yeah, absolutely. It was the first time, other than my parents, that I would genuinely say that I've, like, felt loved. And this girl I met who ended up being my sponsor for about two and a half years um, was, like, screaming at me and was like, please, let me pick you up from school tomorrow and we'll, like, hang out and, like, have fun and, like, go do stuff. It, It was good, and I'm really glad she picked me up. Though Morgan liked Cornerstone, he had problems letting go of his old life. About two weeks into his rehab program, Morgan saw his coke dealer, and they got into a fight. 
He slapped me across the face because I had snitched on someone in the program to my outpatient counselor who was getting high. And then my best friend at the time, sitting there, watched the whole thing. Basically, it was kind of like, what's wrong with you, Morgan? Like, why would you ever do that? Like, And in that moment, I could hear my outpatient counselor's voice in my head telling me that these people don't really care about me. Morgan felt awful about telling his counselor about a student in the recovery program using drugs. But he was more angry at himself for meeting up with his so-called friends. You know, one of the hardest lessons, in, especially in early recovery, is, is you learn who your friends are pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. I learned pretty quickly. At two, two, three weeks in. Not all of them, of course. There's wonderful people, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, you, you'll pretty soon find out the people who, unless there's drugs and alcohol involved, they don't really ha- want to have anything to do with you. Right. I mean, that was kind of some tough love. And so now you, you're hearing your counselor's voice in your head at that time. And, and so now it's like, is it starting to sink in? Yeah, Absolutely. I was, I was like, I need, I need this. Yeah, I mean, I started showing up to outpatient every day on time. I'm actually, that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've never been good at being on time. I really tried to be on time. But when I was there, I, I listened and I participated and talked to people about my problems and got honest and vulnerable. And it was working? And it was. It started working. Who knew? Crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's actually what what they tell you to do is working. I know. <laughs> After six months at Cornerstone, Morgan attended 5280 High School, a school that specializes in holistic wellness. It was hard for Morgan to adjust to the change at first. Well, it was difficult in terms of the fact that I had gotten out of outpatient when I started 5280 and kind of stopped doing the work. I stopped putting the effort in. But I genuinely believe that if I did not have 5280 high school, I would not have stayed sober. And who knows what that would have looked like. 5280 kind of gave me the support and the accountability that I needed to stay sober. As time went on, Morgan felt more comfortable at his new high school. He was meeting new friends and was gaining more confidence. And at a difficult time in his life when he had just broken up with his girlfriend, he knew he had to be true to himself. It was, it was something that I had kind of been thinking about. And I kind of realized that there was no hiding it anymore. And like that was, that, that was just something that I needed to do for myself to be happy with myself and in my body. And so I ended up telling my, one of my best friends at the time, her name's Gwen, um, still one of my best friends, but ended up telling her like bawling, crying, like I'm trans and like, I don't know how to deal with this. And like, I don't want to deal with this. And I was kind of just like, I just might not deal with this and pretend it doesn't exist. And she was like, kind of just like, I know. Like, I had my suspicions, um, which is always such a funny response to me and kind of made me laugh a little bit. Um, (laughs) Because, like, everybody knew but me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's always, always the case. 
Um, yeah, when I came out to my, I got drunk and I got my friends drunk and I pulled him in my room at my high school graduation. I said, I got to tell you guys something. I, I have some news. I'm gay. And they all just kind of looked at me and looked at each other like, okay, so what's the news? <laughs> yep. And and it's like, you're always the last one to know, right? Exactly. <laughs> so what did that make you feel better though? That, okay, well, this person knew already and and this person is is still my friend. Yeah, it definitely made it just a little bit better. Because um, one of my fears with coming out to people and with coming out to my friends and my family was that I wasn't going to be accepted and that they weren't going to want to be my friends anymore or want to associate with me or anything. So knowing that she still loved me just the same was reassuring in a way, for sure. And it gave me the confidence to come out to my other close friends at the time. Yeah. I guess, you know, everything that you've gone through, um, you know, what are some of the challenges in terms of struggling with addiction and mental health that is unique to the trans community? I mean, it's a whole different ball game, if I'm being honest. Because being trans and already having a lot of issues with, like, myself and just being super self-conscious and insecure and, like, hating myself off the bat without, like, already trying to, like, deal with all this trans stuff made it really, really hard um, in that aspect. Um, Because I think, you know, and I, I can't speak for everybody, but I can speak for myself and the people I've talked to, but, like, loving yourself is already such a hard thing as a drug addict and kind of already gets the ball rolling to begin with but then when I added on all of this stuff being trans and coming out and like figuring all that out it just made it like substantially worse um that's got to be so hard you know yeah I mean I'd honestly say like dealing and learning how to be trans and being happy with the way that I am is in my opinion, harder than getting sober. And I did it with two years of sobriety. Yeah. You well, you had to take care of one thing before you took care of the other thing. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, it, I'm sure it would have been overwhelming. Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I truly believe that if, like, things had been different and I came out um, when I was getting high or maybe even when I was newly sober, that I would, I would still be getting high or I'd be dead, really. Uh, well, how do you feel about yourself today? Much better. (laughs) That's great. Still, I struggle. It just depends on the day. I was able to start hormone treatment in October of 2020. I was able to get top surgery in May of 2021, um, which made everything like 10 times better. And I plan to continue on like with bottom surgery and continuing hormones and all that stuff, which is such a long process but being able to get top surgery was a turning point for me in my happiness with this stuff because every day like I woke up looked down hated myself and tried my best to hide it up I mean it sounds like that was just like the weight of the world uh, lifting off of you I mean first you get sober and then you you're transitioning and all of a sudden you're feeling like who Morgan really is Yeah.
Morgan Sinclair is now four years sober. And the school he attended, 5280 High School? Well, he now works as a recovery coach there. Lindsay! Hey, Morgan. Hey, Kate. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Kate. Hi, Morgan. I'm good. How are you? I'm terrible. Morgan loves his job. He really enjoys helping other young people who are struggling just like he used to. At points, it's really hard because it's like dealing with a bunch of me everywhere mm, all the yeah. time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's really awesome, actually, and I really enjoy it. As much as sometimes I like to say that I don't and it's hard, deep down I really, really enjoy it. And I love being able to kind of like give to people what, what I was given, like freely given by people who were my recovery coach or like my sponsors. Like, I don't know, I just love being able to give people that support in the place that like I feel usually is the hardest, especially being 15 and in recovery. High school is like a horrible place to be. So being able to like make people feel comfortable with like their journey in recovery and like being in high school and like being able to help them like be successful even though I'm like I've never been good at school is is it's super cool the second that I was able to come out as trans and be myself it was like I wasn't pretending anymore and I was able to like truly be happy and learn how to be happy within the person that I am but also, like, there's this saying in my program, also probably in AA, that I love to say, and it's don't quit five minutes before the miracle happens. And I say that because it's not hopeless, and there is so many resources out there for people like me, especially 5280, Cornerstone, and Full Circle. Um, I've seen all those programs exponentially change people's lives and, and save their lives. So I guess just don't give up hope and be yourself, which is super cheesy, but very real. Don't quit before the miracle happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nineteen-year-old Morgan Sinclair and back from Broken with creator and host Vic Vela. If you're struggling with thoughts of suicide, reach out to Colorado Crisis Services. The hotline is free and professional. Text TALK to 38255. Follow this and all episodes of Back from Broken wherever you get your podcasts and online at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today and thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters.